I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Today on Conversations, we're talking with former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. So, Governor, you've been out of office a few years. What have you been up to? <laughs> Still live here in Wisconsin. We're out on Pewaukee Lake. My wife and I joked that we left being governor first lady. We had bought a used pontoon boat because of Lake Mendota right there across from the University of Wisconsin. It was wonderful. It was great respite. So we had to find a house for a boat, which we quite literally did. We used to live downtown Milwaukee, but we just gradually made our way out to Pewaukee Lake in the town of Delafield. Lived there, but really spend a good chunk of our time in airports. I'm the president of a group called Young America's Foundation, YAF.org, if people are interested. It's a nonprofit group that works with college, high school, and now middle school kids training the next generation leaders in the fight for freedom. So talking about free enterprise, individual liberties, a lot of things that President Reagan talked about years ago. Is it an offshoot of the original Young Americans for Freedom? You got it. Yeah. So YF, same acronym. It started at William Up Buckley's home back on, of all dates, September 11th, 1960 in Sharon, Connecticut, where the Buckley home was at. Two years later, a guy by the name of Ronald Reagan, who was not an office holder at that time, got very interested. And ironically, years Years later, 1998, Young Americans for Freedom took over what's now called the Reagan Ranch. Back then, it was Rancho del Cielo, the ranch in the heavens that President and Mrs. Reagan used as some people call it the Western White House. But we still have that today, 25 years later. And it's not the only thing we do, but it's one of the places where we bring students out for college, high school, and now middle school conferences in Santa Barbara at a center we have there. And then we take them up at least one of the days up to the ranch itself. Is it true that Pat Sajak is one of your primary contributors? I don't know what the primary, but it is on the wall. It's interesting. You see from some of the early ages, Charleston Heston did a great video back a little over 25 years ago to make the pitch for people to support preserving the ranch. Because at that point, Mrs. Reagan was going to sell it. The president had stopped riding by 1995 because of his onset Alzheimer's and just wasn't safe for him anymore. So by 98, she was selling it and was really torn because this was the place he loved. One of the videos, she actually talked about it, feeling like she was selling a part of Ronnie, as she said. So Charleston Heston and some others made the pitch to find someone to save it as opposed to developing it. And thankfully, our group, YF, bought it from her back then about four and a half million, which was raised. And little do we know, it becomes such a great center out there. But ironically, if you look, we have way off in the distance out of the eyesight, so it doesn't affect the place itself still looks like Reagan lived there. Michael Reagan, his son, Mike Reagan's daughter, Ashley Reagan just got married last weekend and she was at the Reagan Ranch Center. But they're still very much involved. And Mike always tells me, he feels like his dad could walk out of the ranch and still be there. The hats are there, the boots are there, the bed. Everything is the same up in the barn. It's still those saddles and everything he used when he was out riding horses. And yet here it is 25 years later. But we have an area where we honor people who've been early supporters out of eyesight of that image, but on the grounds. And you're right, past Ajax. One day I was looking at names and Regis and Joy Philbin are up there. So all sorts of folks from Hollywood and entertainment, as well as obviously people from his political world. Well, you have quite an impressive list of speakers. Yeah. Yourself, obviously, <laughs> but you have Mike Pence. Yeah. You have Kellyanne Conway, John Ashcroft, sure. and many others. Some great names from past to present. So you get Tim Scott, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, 
Byron Donald, some people from Wisconsin, Mike Gallagher, Brian Style, plenty of other folks who've come to our events and talked along the way. Plus, you get some names from the past like Art Laffer. Art Laffer is very much still involved. Art Laffer is Ronald Reagan's economic advisor. A couple years ago, he was given the Medal of Freedom for his work in economic. His grandkids are active members of our chapters, so he's still very much involved. And then you talk about this Gen Z generation. The biggest stars for them are names that maybe not every listener would be familiar with, but Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Matt Walsh, Katie Pavlich. Those are all folks that are big in the podcast world. Ben Shapiro, for example, might get two to 3,000 students on campus. And at least in one of our examples, we have the largest right of center campus lecture series in America. But we broadcast all those in our YouTube channel, which has about a million and a quarter subscribers. First quarter of this year alone, we had over a quarter billion views of those YouTube videos. But someone like Shapiro might get two or 3,000 people on campus. One of his recent interchanges in the Q&A period in some of those lectures a YouTube short got 23 million views. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. College or university is going to say that for free speech, it can't just be something on a sheet of paper. It's got to be something that has some consequences if people don't act on it. Scott Walker talks about his thoughts regarding young people. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with former Governor Scott Walker. One name you didn't mention, and he's from Wisconsin, is Reince Priebus. Is he one of your speakers as well? Reince, we've been trying to nail him down a couple different times he's offered, and then Reince is like a world traveler. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the big convention coming up next year and said he's got to get out here sooner or later. And I'm actually trying to get not just him, but his son, Jack, who's in high school, to come out to the Reagan Ranch or to one of our other programs for high schoolers. You mentioned, of course, the Young America Foundation, primarily for young people, college students. Yet, in that last congressional election in 2022, yeah. something like, what, 60-some percent of people under 30 supported Democrats, only 30-some percent for Republicans. Why is there such a spread of yeah. numbers there? I've been harping on this quite a bit since last November. It's even bigger. That's the national statistics. If you look at targeted states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona as examples, the gap was more like 40 points, 70, 30 in some cases or more. And, you know, I got asked a lot about that right after the elections, of because of where I'm at at Young America's Foundation, combined with having been on the stage as a presidential candidate, having been a governor, a battleground state, as we call it. And I said, you know, it's not as simple as just cool digital ads or even the candidate itself. This is years of liberal indoctrination. So here in Wisconsin, we're Packer fans. If you grew up in Chicago, you're a Bears fan. Well, in sports, being a homer, hearing only one side of the story is kind of fun. It's just tradition. It makes sense no matter how much your team isn't fully living up to those expectations. In life, particularly in politics or when it comes to thought, to ideas, intellectual thoughts, I think you're shortchanging this generation if all they hear is one side of the story. And so we've seen it over and over and over again. The data fulfills this. Every year, we do a survey of the top 100 colleges and universities here in America. And every year, it shows that there's maybe one, two, three at tops of all the commencement speakers who are anywhere right of center. All the rest are radically on the left. You look at the surveys that have been done for decades now about party affiliation of professors. It was once like four four and a half to one, got up to be 10 to one, it's 20 to one. And I would say even those latest updates don't accurately reflect the fact that there are a lot of college professors who are so radical, they don't affiliate as a Democrat because they don't think they're radical enough. 
even when I was in school, it was left-leaning. When my kids were in school, it dramatically shifted. But even in the last four or five years since they were in college, it has dramatically shifted. And that's where my point is, if we're going to win over, particularly Generation Z as conservatives, we can't wait until two or three months before an election day. We've got to be working in colleges. We've got to be working in schools. We've got to be working younger ages, reaching more students, giving them at least a little bit more balance out there. It's why I think one of the most compelling arguments overall, I'm trying to get some of my friends in the state legislature here and many have been pushing that elsewhere across the country to say, hey, why don't you have enforceable free speech measures? What do you mean enforceable free speech? Enforceable is key because you can say you're for free speech, but if you go in and someone's reserved an auditorium, you can protest on your own. I'm used to protesting. I don't mind that at all. Protesting outside is one thing. Asking tough questions if you get a chance to ask is certainly one thing. But shouting so loud that other students around you can't hear someone in a room that was reserved on a college university that followed all the right procedures, that's not right. And to me, if a college or university is going to say they're for free speech, it can't just be something on a sheet of paper. It's got to be something that has some consequences if people don't act on it. Either they're removed or there's some sort of penalty or in the worst case for them, they're expelled. But there's got to be some way of saying free speech, you know, all the talk of tolerance, it's not tolerant if the only people you let talk are people who 100% agree with you. That's just not what's guaranteed in our constitution. Of all things, a college campus should be the place where it's not only a held legally. It should be revered. That's what colleges are supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a free and open debate, discussion, have your ideas challenged. Sadly, the place where free speech is most at risk, not only here in Wisconsin, but across the country, is typically on a college campus. UW System did a poll last year. They'd surveyed their students in an elaborate process. They spent a lot of time looking at this. And almost two-thirds of the students said they were afraid to speak out on their beliefs, not only for fear from their professors, but from their fellow students. That's just not right. Coming up on WTMJ Conference, Conversations. Third kid says, no, 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 no. I'm completely different. Both of my parents are rabid Democrats. I love them, but I just disagree with them. I said, well, how'd you become a conservative? Guess whose son is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative? Governor Scott Walker tells us. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Let's find out whose son is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. Oh, you're not going to believe this one. Are you trying to change the minds of these young people? Or are you just trying to educate them? What's the difference? Well, I think our belief is if you get a chance, if you can even come close to leveling the playing field, we believe in the validity of our ideas. We think they're solid ideas. We think the main reason why so many young people are siding with a radically left of center viewpoint is that's all they're hearing. And they're not only hearing that, but the only thing they do hear about those of us who are considered conservatives is these awful, horrible things, these caricatures that are oftentimes completely out of whack with reality. And I'll give you a good example. So three years ago, right before COVID hit, I was not the president. I was just someone in a speaker's bureau. I was my first year after being governor. I did a number of projects before coming to America's Foundation. And one was I was in a speaker's bureau. So they invited me to speak on a bunch of different campuses. The last one I spoke at right before COVID essentially shut things down was Stanford University. Now, not exactly a conservative campus. Uh, this is the campus member a few months ago. The protesters shouted down a federal judge there in, in the law school, of all things. I didn't get that. I got protesters. But like I said, I'm used to that. I actually had a good discussion, some good Q&A. I don't mind people challenging me, but I said, you know, 
I'll let you talk. You let me talk in response. And we generally had a good exchange on that. But afterwards, I asked three of the students there who had organized the event a bit about themselves. And what were they doing? What were they studying? And then I always asked them, how'd you become a conservative? Two of the three was very much like we'd expect their parents, their schools, their family, their you know surroundings. The third kid says, no, 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 no. I'm completely different. Both of my parents are rabid Democrats. I love them, but I just disagree with them. I said, well, how'd you become a conservative? He said, well, years before when he was in high school one day, he was in his dad's vehicle. He's driving somewhere. It's about an hour-long drive by himself. And he's bored, so he flips on the radio. And as he's flipping through, he finds this voice on the radio, was a talk radio host, who was kind of entertaining to him. So he listened for a while. And as he listened, he's like, this guy kind of makes some sense. So there on going forward, every time he got back in the car, he'd look for that station. He'd listen to that host. And eventually, not only did he become a fan of this particular host, he would read the things the host would talk about, the books, the articles, the cross-references. And so by the time he went to his mother's alma mater, Stanford University, this kid was a full-fledged conservative, the best kind, I would say for me personally, in the sense that he didn't get it through osmosis. He didn't get it by showing up the rallies. He really thought about it, as I often thought since then. This was the kind of kid who understood that true freedom and prosperity don't come from the clumsy hand of the government. They come from empowering people to live their own lives, control their own destinies through the dignity of hard work. What's interesting about that story is not just that narrative, which in itself would be interesting, but this guy, John, happens to be the son of Susan Rice. So Susan Rice, who was the top foreign advisor, the national security officer for Barack Obama when he was president, who just left being the top domestic officer for President Joe Biden in the White House, her son's a full-fledged conservative. Why? Because somehow, even with all of her influence and all her persuasion, he heard what I would consider to be the truth, just randomly by listening to the radio. And to her credit, she encouraged her son to think freely and to think for himself, and he did. And he saw the light. Now he's a full-fledged conservative. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I think it's a tremendous opportunity, not only for the candidates, but for Young America's Foundation to tell what we do. Former Governor Scott Walker talks about the presidential debate that's happening this summer right here in Milwaukee. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with Scott Walker. Young America's Foundation is going to be sponsoring one of the presidential debates. Yeah, this in Milwaukee. Yeah, how excited are you about that? Oh, it's totally awesome. I mean, it's so the convention alone, I advocated for the DNC coming four years before because, as I joked at the time, it's not blue or red, it's green. It's not just the money it brings into Milwaukee and southeastern Wisconsin, but the incredible attention. And obviously felt shorted because of COVID that it didn't get that full glory and attention. So to be able to have a turnkey operation, Milwaukee was just as prepared in 2020 as they will be in 2024. One, that's tremendously exciting. But then on top of that, they have the first debate here later in August of this year for us to be a partner with that event. Eight years ago, I remember it well because I was standing on the stage myself in Cleveland between Donald Trump on one side and Ben Carson on the other. That night, 24 million people tuned in to watch that first presidential primary debate. And even if it's not 24 million, it's probably going to be close to that, some 20 million people tuning in. I think it's a tremendous opportunity, not only for the candidates, but for Young America's Foundation to tell what we do, to have people check out yaf.org. That logo with that website will be behind the candidates for two hours plus. As you can imagine, kind of like firms getting ready for a Super Bowl ad. We're gearing up the servers on our website to make sure we can maximize the interest that people are going to have and finding out what exactly is this group? What are they doing and how are they tied into what we think will be exciting? 
a number of the questions that are going to come potentially from videotapes of students at our national conference for college students at the end of July. We'll be having a separate room where people just come in one after another and say, what would you ask the candidates? And we believe that they'll be selecting a number of those from that array of good questions. You mentioned that debate in 2016, and Mm -hmm. I watched it. I was watching you particularly. And Donald Trump ran over you like a freight train over a rabbit. Did you know what hit you? No, he ran over everybody. But he went after you first. Oh, for sure. Well, because I was up in the polls, me and Jeb Bush. But it's why I scratched my head a few weeks ago when it was speculated that he might not come. And I thought, this guy's a prize fighter. Whether you agree with him or not, he's a prize fighter when it comes to the debates. Why would he not want to be in the ring itself defending that title? I just can't see how he doesn't come. But yeah, here I'm Midwest nice. I'm used to tough questions. I'm used to even a few debates where it seemed like I was being teamed up on by maybe several of the moderators when I was governor. But there were rules and we all followed them. That's one of the things us in the Midwest were kind of used to. And so it was like, whoa, wait a minute. So we don't, we're not playing by the rules here, but it is what it is. And it was what it was. And I joke by the time I got out, I was the smartest one of the bunch. I got out before I got a nickname. (laughs) (laughs) What was that conversation like in the green room after that happened. What did the other candidates say? What did your spouses say? What was the reaction? And where was Donald Trump at that point? You know, the funny thing with Trump as a candidate, now as a past president, there's not like two faces of Donald Trump. He is who he is. Although he'll say something, and as long as you don't continue to attack him, he moves on. The only time he tends to lash out is when someone else he thinks is lashing out at him. So if he feels threatened that way, he'll push back. That was certainly true in both of the debates I was in. But even in the breaks up on the stand there, I remember turning on the side and Ben Carson came over and a couple of us were talking and then candidate Donald Trump was there. He's exactly the same and doesn't say much different, isn't like introverted there, extroverted in front of the mic. He is exactly who he is along the way. I think if anything, I was just talking with Mike Huckabee uh, on a group both of us are involved with a couple weeks ago and this issue of the debates came up and he had the same reaction I'd have, which was we remember particularly that second debate where 11 of us were on the stage and Donald Trump got more time than all the rest of us combined. And that was just a good example where We were upset, not so much just at the moderators, but at the party at the time, saying the party certainly can't dictate to any news outlet, whether it was Fox, CNN, whomever, what questions they asked. No responsible journalist would allow that to happen. But they should have dictated the terms in terms of saying, if you're going to have 10 candidates, 11 candidates, however many candidates you're going to have, each candidate should have a fixed amount of time so that no one candidate can dominate all the time out there. Now, my theory was, even more so looking back, is that many of the national media outlets lifted up Donald Trump for two reasons. One, because their ratings were good. And I remember CNN actually had coverage of one of Donald Trump's rallies early on that lasted for like an hour straight. So the president at that time, Barack Obama, didn't even get that kind of of attention, but it's because their ratings were up. And the other part of it was, I think a number, maybe not all of them, a number of those outlets thought that Hillary Clinton was vulnerable, but they've erroneously believed that Donald Trump might be the only Republican that Hillary Clinton could defeat in 2016. Obviously the joke was on them. He clearly defeated her as well. But I think that was part of their intention and lifting him up and giving him that kind of airtime, thinking there was no way the American people were going to elect someone like President Trump. I think that was misguided, one, because they didn't realize just how high the level of disdain was for Hillary Clinton. I saw it here in Wisconsin. My goodness, the woman lost the primary to Bernie Sanders and never came back to the state. I mean, literally never came back and and lost the state by just less than 23,000 votes. You know, Midwestern voters, we don't like to be ignored. And then I think the other part was there were a lot of people, I used to say to the media that the media took him and still does literally, not figuratively. Many of those early voters, the early supporters of his took him 
figuratively, not literally, on everything. So when he said he was going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it, I don't think everybody thought, oh, Mexico doesn't pay for it. They thought, this guy's serious. He's serious enough to say that. Most politicians say these things and they let him down. And he said, I think there are a lot of voters who felt like, well, if he's this aggressive, even if he doesn't get 100% of that, he's going to do more than the others out there. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. One of his more effective arguments to the masses is, they're really coming after you, I'm just in the way. Does Governor Scott Walker think Donald Trump could win the Republican nomination again? You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is former Governor Scott Walker. Let's explore his thoughts about former President Donald Trump. In spite of all of the legal challenges he has right now, he's still leading the polls. Do you think he can win that nomination again? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Now, I don't know that it's a slam dunk, but I think the problem that many on the left and many in the national media don't get, or maybe they do, and they're trying to do the same thing I said in 16, and that is, you know, when the district attorney in Manhattan went after him, I think there are a lot of people who feel like, and have been conditioned, understandably so, looking at saying, there's people on the left, you look at the Mueller report, you look at all these things that targeted him, things that I can relate to, because we had a lot of that here in the state of Wisconsin before he was even president. And I think a lot of others just go, yeah, one of these things maybe, but one after another after another, they're just going after him. And one of his more effective arguments to the masses is, they're really coming after you, I'm just in the way. You know, they're coming after you and the things that you believe in, the things you care for. I'm just the one blocking them. I'm just the one standing in the way. And I think that has a certain amount of appeal, particularly, again, you go back to the DA in Manhattan and you look at, here's a guy who ran on saying he was going to go after Donald Trump. After he gets in the office, he drops a whole series of charges down levels or knocks them completely off. And so the one he's elevating is one, essentially, if you get down to it, get the sensationalism. It really boils down to a legal issue over a campaign finance report. Not saying that's right or wrong, but that's essentially what we're talking about. It's not a criminal charge. And that's what he's elevating. You know, he's not prosecuting prostitution, petty crime, other things, but he's elevating an issue of documenting campaign finance reports. This was something that was queued up even to the changes you see with this recent case in terms of the state of New York state legislature making changes in terms of time suits can come. Not that these aren't serious issues, they are, but I think a lot of voters out there look and say, wait, all these things are changing. All these things are moving around. The only person they consistently keep going after is Donald Trump. I think there's a lot of voters out there who feel, you know, like, hey, the people in Washington are all out for themselves. Here's somebody who's taking these hits because he's actually looking out for us. Best example of that was a couple months ago in East Palestine, Ohio. Remember after the train wreck there? He shows up. Joe Biden is over in Europe. Pete Buttigieg hadn't made it. He eventually came the day or two after Trump came. The federal government had largely dropped the ball on this. Donald Trump shows up with a bunch of cleaning supplies, cases and cases of bottled water, eventually takes all the first responders out to McDonald's. And probably the most potent thing, the national media didn't do this, but I was curious. I read a weekly column for the Washington Times and I wanted to comment on this. And I looked at the local headlines. What did it say in the papers in Ohio? And the frequent phrase that was plugged into the headlines was, Trump says you're not forgotten. And I thought that was very revealing for all the people in New York and Washington, L.A. and elsewhere that sit around and snicker and think, oh, how could this buffoon be elected again out there? They miss moments like that, where if that's the guy who shows up in the primaries, if that's the guy even following this next November in 24 shows up at the polls, that's the guy that got elected in 2016. Now, can he continue to be that guy? 
I don't know. Because then there's moments where he goes off in the battles with other Republicans. He says stuff that, at least in the Midwest, would offend us. But if he can be that guy who showed up in East Palestine, Ohio, I think he's going to be formidable both in the primaries and I think he's got a shot in the general election, despite some of the other issues out there. Do you think Joe Biden will run for re-election? I do. I think Joe Biden would gnaw his arm up before he gave up the presidency. This is a guy who is almost as long as I've been alive has wanted to be president of the United States. I mean, this is a guy who should have walked away in shame in 1987 when he got busted for giving almost word for word a campaign speech that was the one that Neil Kinnock, the Labor Party leader, gave clear on the other side of the pond, as they say. This is a guy who completely has been filled with gaffes his career, said all sorts of crazy things about Barack Obama and other candidates. Somehow, I still don't get it, was picked by Obama to be his running mate and basically was sent off into the sunset when Hillary Clinton ran and somehow found his way. And I, I still believe I was sitting at the Fox News set on the night of Super Tuesday, 2020 in New York City. Cavuto had invited me to help out with election coverage that night. And we were talking about the amazement of how this massive shift that was occurring where somebody, I don't know that was Joe Biden himself, but someone aligned with him or the party had convinced Pete Buttigieg, then mayor, to get out of the race to clear the lanes. Amy Klobuchar, the U.S. Senator from Minnesota, who'd come across as more mainstream to get out of the way. And that cleared the way at that time for Joe Biden, former vice president, to kind of adopt the mainstream middle of the party kind of more moderate view, which is one he'd embraced throughout most of his time in the Senate, versus Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and the others who were in the far left wing. And I think they scared enough voters, plus Jim Clyburn, who was then number three in the House leadership, essentially won the state of South Carolina for Joe Biden by making the case that he was going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court and that this was important. And you just look at how that all worked out. And then for all his talk about being mainstream, he picked Kamala Harris, who Newsweek at the time had her ranked further to the left than Bernie Sanders. And they effectively outsourced their agenda to Bernie Sanders, AOC, and others out there, which is why I look at that and say, you know, I have more respect for Bernie Sanders than I do for Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders actually believed in something. Joe Biden believes in getting elected and sustaining his presidency, which is why, of course, he's going to run again. And I think he stays as long as he can. And I don't think they vote the 25th, because if they do, Kamala Harris is waiting in the wings. And you've got to be a pretty hardcore partisan to speak highly of the current vice president. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations, you're not out. You're going to run again for something. I am a quarter century younger than Joe Biden, so I got plenty of time. (laughs) Former Governor Scott Walker reveals if he plans on taking on Tammy Baldwin. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with former Governor Scott Walker. You get so animated when you talk about politics. I wonder why. You're not out. You're going to run again for something, I am a quarter century younger than Joe Biden, so i got plenty of time. <laughs> All right, but the question I have, next big race here in Wisconsin is Tammy Baldwin. Yeah. Are you going to run against her? No, for two reasons. One, and I was just, I was joking. I was joking about it. I am 25 years younger than Joe Biden. But the work that we're doing with young people is so critically important that I can't get away from that anytime soon. Because if that doesn't turn around, it doesn't matter whether it's me or somebody else like me, 24, 26. I mean, by 2024 nationwide, it's about parallels here in Wisconsin, 48.5% of the voters in the 24 election will be either millennials or Gen Z. By 2028, 
the vast majority uh, will be that age group. So if we don't make a dent there, it won't matter whether I or anybody else runs. So that's why the work we're doing at Young America's Foundation is so important. But in 24, no, I have busy doing this important work, but equally as important, and I say this with all due respect to my friends who are in the U.S. Senate, we got so much done as governor, I'd be bored in the Senate. I mean, this is a place where, you know, five, six, seven years is like moving fast. When I was governor, you know, you got up a couple hours, you get something done right away. That's the place to be. Governor's the best, I think even better than president. Governor's the best job if you want to get things done in American politics. Well, you ran for re-election and Tony Evers beat you. Mm -hmm. Had you not run for president, do you think you would have won that race? Yeah, there were a number of factors. I think that had part of it. People say, hey, wait a minute, which job do you want? When you're talking about 1%, it could be anything. I think clearly, you look back at that, the fact that there were referendum questions on marijuana, which still amuses me that people didn't realize they had no bearing whatsoever, but they were sold on college campuses, though. If you go vote, and if you don't vote for the referendum, but you vote for the Democrat running for office here, you'll get marijuana legalized, which it didn't. It was purely advisory. But you look at the votes turned out in college campuses, that certainly had an impact. I think having run, I think there was a certain amount of fatigue as well. I mean, this was effectively my fourth election for governor, if you include the recall election. And I think the other thing is, I remember saying this the last week or two of my time in office, I invited all the press to come in the governor's office and we talked about things. And I think it was Scott Bauer from the Associated Press, you know, said, is there anything you regret or anything more you would have done? And I said, you know what? You look at the obvious reforms we know with collective bargaining and the unions, but really the tax reform, regulatory reform, welfare reform, education reform, all the things we did, of which common sense conservatives around the country could only dream of some of those. We did almost every one of those things on the list, at least at the time. I said, you know, effectively, I might have reformed myself out of a job. And so, you know, the heart of your question, I think any one of those things, but I even think that last part where people on the center right, there wasn't as much passion because people said, hey, what more is there to do? He did it all. So I don't regret it. I love the fact the legislature's still there, still intact. They're protecting those reforms, reforms that have saved taxpayers over $15.5 billion, reforms like Act 10 that now allows schools to pick the best and the brightest and keep them in the classroom, pay them for performance. Reforms have just done so many great things for the state are still there. Do you see yourself running for governor again? Uh, Never say never. I don't want to preclude. There's a lot of good up and coming solid conservatives now in the legislature, but people in the job creator world and others out there. So I look ahead and I think one of my good friends uh, when I was governor is Terry Branstad. Terry was first elected lieutenant governor when I was a kid, when I was still in elementary school. He was the longest serving governor, not only in Iowa's history, but eventually in America's history. So he was governor for three terms, left for eight years, came back in 2010 and ran again for a whole nother cycle and was elected two more times after that. But he did it for the right reason. It wasn't that he was bored. He enjoyed it. He was the president of Des Moines College. He was loving his life, doing his thing. But he was upset because his state, like Wisconsin was in 2010, was a mess. And so he came back for the right reasons. And he not only won the primary, he won the general election. I've seen other governors, former governors run, where it seems like they're running because they're looking for something to do. And that's not a reason to run for office. Uh, you should only run for office, not because you want to be somebody great, because you want to do something great. And if you look around and realize nobody else is stepping forward who can do what needs to be done, then and only then would I consider it. If the election were today, who would win Wisconsin for the president? Mm. (laughs) I still think it would be as close, if it was Donald Trump and Joe Biden, as close today as it was the last two elections. I think it's a toss-up. All right. One last question. Mm -hmm. You've run for many offices. (laughs) You've won some, 
You've lost some. Which is more difficult for your family? Going ahead and getting into the fray of operating for four years in that office or the sorrow of the defeat? Well, I think everything is more difficult for families in terms of being a challenge. I mean, a tax that you get. It's one of the things I tell candidates all the time, particularly spouses and children, say don't read the comments on social media. I stopped doing that about 11 and a half years ago. It's the most sane thing I've done. In fact, if anybody's listening, if you're in sports or entertainment, I'd tell you to do the same thing. It's somebody sitting in their mother's basement at 47, 48, 49 years old, typing away, you know, taking pot shots, everything. I just don't, and I apologize to people who are nice supporters of mine. I don't read that either. I'll read other people's posts, but I don't read the comments out there. And I tell candidates all the time because it's really easy to get consumed. So I think it's harder for them with a loss in the same way that attacks are, you know, the first time you see a negative ad. For me, I mean, I was blessed because when I was county executive here in Milwaukee County, it was elevated from my time in the legislature to being county executive and not just any kind of executive, one first Republican ever, maybe first Republican ever, where I got attacked. I mean, I had protesters in the middle of my state of the county address in the county courthouse. I had protesters show up at events. Now, that got elevated as governor, but it wasn't like I came from never having had that kind of experience before. So I think for families, it's really tough, particularly if someone's not had the kind of experience. We were blessed not to have the nonsense, 100,000 protesters, death threats against me, my family, my kids, my parents, everybody else along the way, but to at least have been prepared so it wasn't like the first time anything like that had ever happened. But it's always more difficult for the family. I think you miss it all. Oh, I love it. That's actually one of the neat things about what I'm doing is I'm... and. God bless the people who are out running, you know, creating jobs for people and putting the people to work in the private sector. I had opportunities to do that, too. But I just love working with these young people. I often tell the kids, conservative-leaning students today, and I share a bomb, which might seem completely odd and disconnected. But, you know, when they put 100,000 protesters in and around our state capitol, why'd they do it? They wanted to intimidate me. But the same thing's happening, different scale. But when, you know, professors tell kids they get flunked if they don't think this, this and this or classmates tell them they're being outcast or attacked or people on social media, you know, cancel them out or things like that. That's all about intimidation as well. And so in a weird sort of way, I feel like I can relate to where these young people are at. And I just keep telling them, you just got to persevere. It's not always easy. You got to persist for freedom. And in the end, we'll prevail. Scott Walker, you'll be back. Thank you. We've been talking with the former governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. We heard a lot about his thoughts regarding young people and their importance in electing our next generation of leaders. We also talked with him about whether or not he intends to jump back in the political field and run again. Now, if you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with Governor Walker, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.